Christmas, everyone. We're very, uh, very glad you're here to sing about our Savior's birth and, and worship Him today. Um, and we're grateful to everyone who participated in our instrumental preludes, the kids and everyone else who played instruments to, to praise our Lord. We, we appreciate that. That's great. We're going to start off with a Christmas song here, so maybe you could, uh, could stand and sing with us as we get started. we know what we're singing. Do you know what that Gloria in Excelsis Deo means? Some of you probably do. It's, it's the Latin. It means 
glory to God in the highest. That's what the angels sang, and that's what we get to sing today. So remember that the next time we come by the chorus. Shepherds, why this jubilee? Why your joyous strains prolong? What the gladsome tidings be, which inspire your heavenly song? sacrificed your son for us. We have nothing we can give you to come close to that, but we can praise you now. We can lift our voices now. We can offer our lives back to you, Lord, and we know that everything you do for us, everything you do for us, Lord, is all for your glory. Lord, as we take up the offering today, as we give back just a small portion of what you have given to us, Lord, I just ask you to magnify and glorify this offering, just to lift it up to you, and uh, Lord, just make it more than it is. Lord, just uh, as we continue the service, I ask you to bless the congregation, bless the word, and Lord, just bless us as we go through this holiday season. And Lord, just uh, I ask you to be in our hearts right now. In your name, Lord Jesus, amen.
thank each of you who have blessed my soul this morning already in leading us into God's presence and worship. Uh, thanks to the young people and to little older young people who have uh, blessed us with their special talents. I don't know about you, but I just am very encouraged by being able to participate. And I mean, that's what corporate worship is all about. It's what we can't do individually is what we can do corporately. And I just am very blessed by those with musical gifts and abilities who use them in the body of Christ for the glory of God and the, the gain of an advance of his kingdom. Let's pray. Father, it is this time of year when we celebrate the birthday of a king. And not just a king, but the king. And I ask now, Father, as we turn to the familiar, that you would make it fresh. I pray that as we consider that which we know that you would make it known more deeply to us. And I pray for those who, for whom it may not be familiar and it may not be well known that they would come to understand that you would, by your Spirit's power, remove the blinders from our eyes that we might behold these wonderful truths and that they might not just inform our minds they might not just warm our hearts, but they would transform our lives. For your glory, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. In 1994, Danny Glover starred in a movie called Angels in the Outfield. And in this movie, the, there's a little boy who was told by his father that the only chance of them being brought back together as a family was if the Angels, the California Angels, the professional baseball team, won the pennant. Throughout the course of the movie, we see divine intervention that takes place in order for the Angels to actually win the pennant and give this boy hope that, yes, maybe my family will be reunited and we'll be together as a family. Nearly 2,000 years ago, there were literally angels in the outfield, or should I say angels out in the fields surrounding Bethlehem. And Luke's script for his movie in Luke chapter 2 verses 1 through 14 plays out a little bit differently, but there's still divine intervention, and the divine intervention comes to make it make us aware and sure that this Messiah that's born really is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the only hope. For us to be restored as a family. For us to be restored back into right relationship with our Heavenly Father. And so I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Luke, to this familiar passage that I pray will not just be familiar, but become a little fresher in our hearts and our, in our souls today. We're going to see two scenes in this movie from Jesus' birth that confirmed for us through this divine intervention that Jesus is the Son of God and the only hope 
for us to be restored to our Heavenly Father. I'm reading from Luke chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 14. Now it came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census should be taken in all the inhabited earth, or your text may say the Roman Empire, which they considered to be the inhabited earth. Verse 2, this was the first census taken while Quirinius, Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all were proceeding to register for the census, everyone to his own city, and Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And it came about that while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in their fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. And the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Tomorrow night, God willing, we'll pick up the story in verse 15 and carry it through verse 20. You're all invited to join us at 5.30 for our Christmas Eve service. But here is the angel in the outfield and then the angels in the outfield in Luke chapter 2. We see the first of these scenes in the movie that God has, the script that God has placed for us, in that the facts of our Savior's arrival are laid out for us. A couple of items that I want to call to your attention, considerations around the facts, first of all, is the context. Verse 1 says, now it came about in those days. What days? The days that have been, we've been discussing all through the gospel of Luke chapter 1, up until verse 79 of chapter 1. Chapter 80 is about John's life after these days, okay? Those days. We see that there was a, the mention of a decree by Caesar Augustus. And it serves at least two purposes, this mention of a decree. Why is it in the text? Well, first of all, it sets the context. It sets Jesus' birth in historical context, Some of you will know the name of Marion Robert Morrison. He was born in Winterset, Iowa in 1907. Well, it's John Wayne. A real person in a real place at a real period in history. Jesus Christ was born as a real person in a real place in a real time in human history. There's a reason 
the text says, during the reign or during the time of Caesar Augustus. And it attests also to God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty to be able to use the decree of a human ruler in order to accomplish his divine purposes. God used the decree of Caesar Augustus. Now, we aren't always sure, regardless there are difficulties in identifying exactly when this census was and and where it came from and what part Quirinius played in it all, but the fact remains that human decisions played a part. That God brought Mary and Joseph by virtue of quote-unquote human decisions supernaturally to make this trek 60 miles up from Nazareth. And I say up because the text says up and it is up. Topographically up. Even though they went south, they went up. So we typically think to go up north. Well, they went up south because they went up the hills, the Judean, into the Judean hills. And so we have this because he went to the city of David because that's where David was born. We don't know any other record of David ever visiting Bethlehem again, but that's where he was born, so it's called the city of David. That was his birthplace because Joseph was of the household and the family of David. So he had to go register there. You look at chapter 1, verse 27. It says that the angel appeared uh, now in the sixth month. An angel Gabriel was sent to, from God to the city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. So there's Joseph. And here he was. Mary came with him, it says in the text. Then it came about uh, that in verse 5 uh, that um, and in order to register along with Mary who was engaged to him. I was not really thinking about this much, but Mary really didn't need to go. Legally, there was no reason for her to be there because he was the head of the household. He probably had to register there. He was of the household and family of David. But she went, and she went, speculation maybe. Well, it is speculation. We don't know why exactly she went, but she, she's nine months pregnant, so I'm assuming that, you know, The husband kind of wanted to be there when the baby was born. So she went. Otherwise, he would have been absent. She also went perhaps because if Joseph would have left her back in Nazareth, she would have been subject to a lot of ridicule and persecution without him being there to defend her. We don't know for sure, but the point is this. Human decisions, the decree of Caesar and the decision of Joseph to take Mary with him, all played into the providential plan of God that she would bring this baby to Bethlehem as it was prophesied. You look at Micah chapter 5, verse 2. We've had it on the screen. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago and from the days of eternity. All part of God's plan to bring them to Bethlehem for her to give birth. That's the context of it. The conditions of our Savior's birth are in verses 6 and 7. And as I read through the text, as I read through it, there are several indications in the text that communicate the obscurity around the birth of Jesus. That communicate the poverty of His family. The humility 
with which he came into the world. And also, at least maybe a hint of the hostility towards him as he came into the world. First of all, there's this location. Where is Bethlehem? I mean, Bethlehem is just a, a little village. It's a, it's a no place place. You know, it's like we say it's not in the middle of nowhere, but you can see it from there. It's just a very obscure place. Then, not only was there this location that indicates it, but it was not by accident because it was fulfillment of prophecy, this little place. Then there was the isolation. Look at verse 7. It says, And she gave birth to her firstborn son, which means that she had other children after Jesus, but none before Jesus. And she wrapped him in clothes and laid him in a manger. No obstetrician, obstetrician, no midwife, no medical team, no nurses. A 13 to 16 year old girl gave birth to her own son, wrapped him in clothes, and laid him in a manger. Yeah, Joseph was probably there. But that's it. There she was by herself. Then there was the provision. Clothes. Wrapped him in clothes. Tightly wound, wrapped him up in clothes. Well, uh, our three children were born and in the hospital and they wrap them. I don't know how they get it so tight, but they get those blankets, you know, you can't even, it's just like, they're, like the kid's going to suffocate. But that simulates what the child feels in the womb. And Mary, these long claws, she wrapped her baby up in them and then laid him in a feed trough. Hmm, why a feed trough? Because the place where she gave birth was with the animals or near the animals. So poor that they couldn't be in any other place and also possibly a hint of hostility because there was no room for them in the inn. Here is a 13 to 16 year old girl, nine months pregnant, and the other human beings around, there can't be that many people in Bethlehem that are nine months pregnant, are so callous that they could not even afford her the least of creature comforts to give birth in a private room. The King of Kings, born with the animals, laid in a feed trough. That's the story of Jesus. But the facts are intended, I think, to do several things, at least in my mind. The facts, first of all, provide us confidence in the historicity of Jesus' birth. They, find, they give me confirmation of God's sovereignty in the whole affair. And they give me comfort that this one born as a babe in a Bethlehem understands what it's like to be a normal human being. Wasn't born in a palace somewhere, cushy place that none of us could relate with, but in a, a stable. Secondly, we see the second scene in the, in, the, in the movie of recorded, the script, is the fanfare that surrounds our Savior's birth. In verses 8 through 14, we see in verse 8, it says, And in the same region there were some shepherds 
staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. Shepherds. Why shepherds? Why do we have shepherds in the story of the birth of the king of kings? Shepherds were despised people. First of all, because of their inability in the, in the Jewish law to be able to, uh, Jewish practices, to be ceremonially clean. They were out in the fields. They were never traveling back into the temple to do their worship. They were ceremonially unclean. So their inability to be clean and secondly, their proclivity to consider what is thine as mine, as the commentators say. In other words, they had no scruples about them. In fact, shepherds were not even to testify. They weren't allowed to testify in law courts. That's how incredulous they were. That's how corrupt they were. That's how despised they were. And yet, these are the people to whom the announcement of Jesus' birth comes. And we see that there's another little detail in the text that they were watching over their flock. Singular. By night. We're not talking about a whole horde of shepherds. We're not talking about a lot of flocks out in the fields. We're talking about one flock with a very few shepherds. And we see in this announcement, three parts to the announcement to this small and suspect group of people that provide us with the understanding that Jesus, our Savior, came to restore us in the right relationship with Himself. And I use those words carefully because all of us are not in right relationship with God from the start. Something happened at the fall. So that every human being is born in sin. Sinners by nature and sinners by choice. And therefore God's wrath is due us. We are at enmity with God from the get-go. And need to be restored into right relationship with Him. And so we see first of all the declaration of our Savior's birth. In verses 8-11 through there's two facts that come to light. First of all the messenger in verse 9. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. You can imagine that. Let me just try to put yourself. I'm out in a field somewhere in the middle of nowhere. And, uh, you know, there's some stars out in the light. But all of a sudden, whammo, there's an angel. You know, I'm about at night. You know, they didn't have their espresso. They didn't have their five-hour energy probably. They're probably a little groggy. And uh, they're trying to watch these sheep. They're probably a little bit cold. And boom, there's this angel. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And (laughs) Charlie Brown, and they were sore afraid. And they freaked out. Really. They were like, whoa, what is this? They were frightened to death. Scared. A messenger. God's angel out in the field showed up. And met them there. And they were afraid. You see... God's message of great magnitude came through his messenger. When the president wants to get a message out, he sends his press secretary. When God wants to get a message out, he sends his angelic messengers. And it was a great message, a great message of great magnitude. And what did the message say? That's the messenger. What was the message? First thing out of his mouth is, don't worry. Don't be afraid. 
Well, that's good because we're freaked out right now. So the first thing you say is don't be afraid. It's interesting to me that in Luke chapter 1 verse 13 when Zechariah was in doing his service in the temple and the angel appeared to him, the very first words out of the angel's mouth were don't be afraid. When the angel Gabriel came to Mary in Luke chapter 1 verse 30, first words out of his mouth was don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I mean, if the police show up at your door, you want to hear the words, don't worry, it's, it's not bad. You know, it's good news. That's what you want to hear. You, you, that's the very first words you want to hear. Whew. You know, um, uh, it's good. That's what they said. Don't be afraid. And they said, for we bring you good news of a great joy which shall be to all people. All people. Key word there. Or key phrase, all people. It's good news for all people. It's not just good news for the Jewish people. It's good news for all people. You're in the Bible. Look over at Luke chapter 2, verse 32. It says, Simeon, praising God and blessing him because of the child, which you're going to hear a little message on that in a week. A light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. He is the salvation for the Jew and also for the Greek. So it's a, to all people. And then we see in verse 11, for today. The little preposition for is interesting because it gives us both the cause for joy and the content of the good news. What is the cause for joy and the content of the good news? For today, that's literally in this day, in the city of David, Bethlehem. The city of David, and then there he talks about a Savior, indicates that this is a Savior that has more to do with what the Old Testament prophesied, that it's not just going to be a Savior from political oppression. This is not going to be just a Savior from economic depression. It's going to be a Savior from spiritual condemnation a savior has been born for you for you you shepherds the despised people the untrustworthy people amen to that because he's a savior for me too because I'm just like them and so we all are, really. He didn't come to the religious uppity-ups. He didn't come to the big shots and the, the, the priestly class. He came to the people who knew they needed a Savior. For you. And for all after you who would receive and respond to this one person, Jesus, who's coming into the world, a Savior, whom the angel qualifies I'm not making this up. Look at verse 11. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. Literally, a Savior, Christ Lord. It's the only construct or place in the New Testament where this construction is written. He is Christos, which is the Greek equivalent to the Old Testament Messiah or the Anointed One. So he is Christos and he is Kurios, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Yahweh, God. He is Messiah God. God in the flesh. Come to save us. 
and to deliver us. Christmas is about salvation. That's why we celebrate. It's the only reason to celebrate Christmas. It's about salvation. This baby was no ordinary baby. He's the Messiah. He's the prophet foretold in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. He is the son of David in Psalm 89. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, he's the promised one from David's line. He is the Savior of the world. Isaiah chapter 43, verses 3 and 11 and many other places. And he is unique. This is no ordinary baby who's being born. He is the God-man who is the Savior and Lord. But Savior from what? That's the question. What does he save you from? What does he save us from? Well, there's lots of suggestions, at least today. Political oppression. Financial burdens. Maybe it's from discrimination. Or physical affliction. Well, not so much. I mean, sometimes, but that's not his primary purpose in coming. Those are all tangential. Those are all corollary results of his ultimate reason for coming and his saving us from our biggest problem. He is the promised servant of Isaiah. I want you to look at Isaiah chapter 49, verses 6 and, and then we'll look at verse 26. Because he came to restore, the servant of Isaiah comes to restore Israel and all people into right relationship with God. He says, it's too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations, Luke 2, 32, so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth and all flesh will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. He is our Redeemer, which is what Galatians tells us. Galatians chapter 4. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, that He might redeem those of us who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Redeem. It's a key word. The price of release. What is the result of our sin? Condemnation. We deserve to die. Judgment. Wrath. But he buys us out from the curse of the law. Redeems us so that we can be his children. Ah, restored into relationship with our heavenly father. Christ saves us. Saves all who believe from our sin. From its consequence from its penalty and then from its power and then in glory from its presence as we've talked about on different occasions because our greatest need is forgiveness God sent us a savior to forgive our sins so that we'll no longer pay the penalty and experience the wrath of God because of our sins the good news is a, of great joy for all people. Well, that is if you recognize that you're sinful and that you need delivered from the wrath of God that's due you because of your sin. So the question, first of all, is do we accept that marvelous truth? That Jesus is the Savior from our sin and its penalty, which is condemnation, the wrath of God. 
I don't know. I mean, you have to answer that question. Have you accepted this? Do you receive it? Do you admit, yes, I am a person who is either living in active rebellion or passive indifference towards God? Sin. And do I believe that Jesus Christ came and he was born as a babe in a manger so that he would live and die on a cross? And his death on the cross paid the, the, the debt, paid the penalty that I deserve to pay. And then do I confess that Jesus, yes, is my Lord and Master? Am I willing to admit and acknowledge and confess that Jesus is the Lord who died in my place? And say, Lord, yeah, that's true. That's true of me. I messed up. I deserve your punishment, your wrath, but I thank you that Jesus died and I accept his death as the payment I deserve and I invite you to be my Lord and my Master. That's the Savior that the shepherd announced, or the, the angel announced to the shepherds was born as a babe in, in Bethlehem. And then you say, okay, that's fine. You can accept Christ. That's the offer of salvation at Christmas. And then maybe you say, well, I already, I already know Christ. This is my prayer that what is familiar would become fresh. That it wouldn't just be old hat. But do we announce this marvelous truth? I was finishing up, uh, catching up with an old friend, and uh, we were sitting at a restaurant, and uh, the waitress came by and, uh, with the check, and you know, she said, uh, Happy Holidays. And I just like, I mean, afterwards, I just went, oh, what a bozo I am I, I didn't say anything like you know happy holidays is like milk toast I mean it's like that doesn't mean anything to me I should have said you know what I hope you have a merry Christmas or I hope you have a blessed Christmas why am I ashamed this is the point of Christmas is the salvation of a lost humanity and I miss it and we often miss it God wants us to, to declare to the people around us that Jesus is the reason for the season. It is a salvation message that you are lost and in need of a Savior. We were caroling, caroling last night, and uh, man, I got the coldest stare from uh, one, of the, one of the people at one of the places we went caroling at when I, when I wished them a happy, uh, Merry Christmas. It was just like... And just stone cold Steve Austin, you know, it was just like, and I thought, I thought this morning, I was thinking in the first service, I was thinking, you know, I just need to pray for that guy. You know, he's just got a hard heart. He is one for whom Christ came. And that's the message we have. So when you send your Christmas cards, be overtly Christian. You know, happy holidays. I'm sorry if I'm, I'm going to step on your toes. You send them, don't, don't waste your stamps. On happy holiday cards. You know? Merry Christmas! In your Christmas letters, maybe there should be a little bit more about Christ than there is about your children. My wife and I have avowed ourselves of not uh, giving gag letters out to people about how wonderful and, you know, like our children are the best children on the planet. And I mean, it's like, eh, nobody cares. Because their kids are the best. So why try to convince them otherwise? 
What about when we sing in our Christmas carols? What about your, if you decorate your home or decorate your yard? You know, let's don't be Chevy Chase and just put all kinds of junk on our, our uh, houses and our chimneys and just to get the most lights out there to be like Las Vegas. Let's be intentional about proclaiming Christ at Christmas. Invite folks to, to, to Christmas Eve service. Ask people, what does Christmas mean to you? And I'm preaching to myself. These are the things. We can talk to people about Christ. Then there, there's not just a declaration of our Savior's birth. There's a confirmation. I like verse 12 because it says, And this will be a sign to you. The angel says to the shepherd, Say, look, I got a sign for you. This is how you're going to really know who I'm talking about. Because when you go to Bethlehem, there's going to be a little dude laying in a manger wrapped in clothes. That's the guy. Isn't it interesting that in chapter 2, verse 7, it specifically states that was what was true about Jesus. He was wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Now in verse 12, the angel tells the shepherds, this is the guy. There's this clarification. And if you find that guy, you know it's the one I'm talking about. The Savior of the world. That's the confirmation and the clarification that gives there. I, I, know, uh, I know a person who lost their computer and, and they, they went to f- claim it at a, at a place where they thought they lost it and the people said, can you describe the computer and the case the computer was in? Why? Because if you can't describe the case and the computer, then it's probably not yours. But if you can... Chances are that's your computer. You know, they don't just, well, you lost your wallet at the, well, what's your, what's your name? You know, oh, I lost my wallet. You know, they come over the announcement, there's, someone, there's the lost wallet, there's a lost cell phone. Yeah, that's my cell phone. I'm sure they just hand it right over. No. Unless they're brain dead. They, they don't do that. The sign confirmed the reality that this is the Jesus that he's talking about. There is the declaration, there's confirmation, and finally there is the celebration of our Savior's birth that confirm He is the Savior and He came to restore us in the right relationship with Himself. There is the cause of the celebration, verse 13. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts. Here they are, angels in the outfield now. We had an angel, now we got angels. And notice again, suddenly... He thought they freaked out when one guy showed up or one angel. Now they got the whole heavenly chorus. A heavenly host, that's an army. And there's just, remember, there's just a few of these shepherds. So they're outnumbered now, big time. And with praising God, I thought, you know, what what gets you juiced up, you know, to, to, to celebrate happy? Quitting time, that's what gets me juiced up. You say, yeah, quitting time, then I'm excited. I had a sign outside of our, in, my off, in the office of a construction company I work at. You think the dead don't come back to life? Be here at quitting time. You know? Presence under the tree, that gets you excited? Maybe it's a promotion, whatever gets it. But I'm thinking, there are very few things that get the angels in heaven so juiced up that they break through from the divine to the human and celebrate for the world to see. They were there at creation, Job chapter 38, verse 7. And it says they broke out into a chorus. Now, I don't know who was there to hear them, 
except for the very first human beings or whatever. And the second time is here. At the birth of God's Son, it's no accident that only at the baptism and the transfiguration that God breaks through and He says, that's my boy. Here, the angel's coming. That's the one. The Son of God, the Savior of the world. That's the reason for the celebration. Then there's the, the, the confirmation that the child is the Savior is bound up in the accuracy of, of these details. He celebrates victory, victory, victory. Then there's the content of that celebration. God is to be glorified. He says, glory to God in the highest. That means God in heaven. Meaning honor and praise to Him for the birth of His Son. Honor and praise to God. Because he's provided a way for us to be restored into right relationship with himself. That's Ephesians chapter 1. You can read Ephesians chapter 1. He says all of this, we've been brought into the family, adopted and in, in love. He predestined us into adoption of his sons to the praise of the glory of his grace. Who gets praised? Because us fallen, wicked, sinful people don't suffer because we're trusting in Jesus. Us? God is to be praised because mercy is not getting what you deserve and we don't get what we deserve when God delivers us because we're trusting in His Son, Jesus. And then man is saved. God is glorified, man is saved. Notice the end of verse 14. Mistranslated in the King James, sorry. And on earth peace among men with whom He is pleased. It's not peace on earth, goodwill towards men. Like everybody. Is there peace in Syria? Is there peace in Afghanistan? Peace in North Korea? Peace in India? No. I mean, Brother uh, Anand just told us this morning about a group of brothers that were preaching in a city and uh, the, the 50 of the Hindu radicals came and were going to take them out. There's not peace on earth. But there can be, and there is peace on earth among those with whom God is pleased. That's the key. With whom He is pleased. Peace is the absence of conflict. Remember, our sin deserves God's wrath. That's hostility. But because Jesus came and died on the cross, it says, therefore having been justified by faith, Paul says it in Romans chapter 5, 1, therefore we have peace with God. What do you mean peace with God? Because Jesus took upon himself the wrath that you and I deserve to take so that if we trust in Jesus, God's righteousness comes on us and, our wrath, and God's wrath goes upon him. There's a divine transfer. Peace on earth with whom God is pleased, whom God chooses, not who we choose, we don't choose, God chooses those with whom he is pleased. It says in uh, Colossians chapter 1, that Christ died in our place, that he made peace through the blood of his cross. It's the blood of Christ shed on the cross was the payment to redeem us. The price paid to release us from the penalty and the slave market of sin. That's what he's celebrating. Peace on earth would will towards those with whom God's favor rests. J.H. Jowett says this, Peace is declared to be not a root, but a fruit. The fruit of righteousness, a rightness with God. So, I ask you tonight, 
this morning, I'm sorry. Unbelievers, do you appreciate the celebration of Jesus' birth? Do you realize that the birth of Jesus was so that you could be delivered from God's wrath? That's the whole point of it. And have you accepted that gift? God demonstrated his love towards us. And while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. So that we don't have to die. We don't have to re-experience that. That's the offer. It just needs to be received. And so I implore you. On this Christmas day, receive the greatest gift, the forgiveness of your sins and freedom and deliverance from the wrath of God. As uh, someone put it this way, I didn't, but I have a slide of it. If there's no Christ, there's no peace. If you know Christ, you know peace. Okay? No Christ, no peace. If you know Christ, you know peace. So do you know Christ? If you don't, you can. And you can know peace with God. And then, not just peace with God, but peace with others who know God. That's Ephesians chapter 2. And then, you and I, you know, here's the song. What is it? A little town of Bethlehem. Where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. Okay, And those of us who know Christ... Say, well, yeah, I, I accept that. I, I can appreciate the, the, that. Do we participate in the celebration? I mean, we would read about it, but do we participate? You know, that's, I was just like looking around here this morning when we're, we're singing, and I'm going, I wonder if these people are really into this, you know? Because like, it's like, this is kind of worship stuff. It's kind of like, praise God. In excels his Deo, Gloria, 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 you know? Really? Yeah, really. Because if we know Jesus, we have the greatest gift. We've been forgiven. God's wrath is no longer on us. We're at peace with God. And only at peace with God can we be at peace with other men. That's worth celebrating. And then do we communicate it to other people? We give glory to God in the highest by living our lives to the glory of God. And then do we communicate it to other people? Rejoice and relate. Rejoice in the gospel and relate the gospel. That's the call to us. You see, as we close the service, the, the restoration to right relationship with God cost him his son. And so as we break the bread and drink the cup, we remember his body broken and his blood shed, which was the price that was paid to release us so that we no longer receive the wrath of God. That's what we do at communion. And so I invite everyone here who knows Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior to take a few moments and reflect on what Christmas really means. God's Son received God's wrath so that all who believe would receive His righteousness and be restored into right relationship with Him. That's a beautiful name. The beautiful name of Jesus. What a wonderful name. The wonderful name of Jesus. What a powerful name. The powerful name of Jesus. It's in His name. And by His name, we come. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Christmas. And for You sending Your Son 
a Savior for all people. And I pray that if there's anyone here today that's not trusting you as their Lord and Savior, that they would admit their sin, believe that Jesus died to pay the price that they deserve to pay, and they would confess you as our Lord and Savior this day. I pray for each of us who know you that we would be more intentional about participating in the celebration. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Have a blessed Christmas. Thank you for joining us today.